Let me read from 1 Peter chapter 3, the text that we'll be in tonight, starting in verse 15. Peter says, But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy. Always be prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do this with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that be God's will, than for doing evil. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison, because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is eight, persons were brought safely through water. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. Let me pray. Father, would you pray just like um, Shane just prayed, that you would use your word to speak and instruct our hearts tonight. That the message that Peter gave to your church long ago of where our hope is found, of what to do in the face of suffering, and just how the spirit of Christ has for centuries and centuries been at work in the people of Christ and the people of God like Noah and saints today and saints throughout generations to work and to proclaim about the salvation that's found in you alone. Would that happen here tonight, Lord? Would anything that I say that's not consistent with your word be forgotten as soon as it is said? But would you drive the truth and the principles found in your teachings here deeper into our hearts? I pray for anyone who does not have assurance that if something was to happen to their life, that they would spend it with you forever and ever and ever. That tonight, you would win. We love you. Thank you that over all things, you've already won. And that your victory is certain. Teach us now. Amen. Well, I'm going to start with a little bit of a question just to think on. What do you hope in? What do you Hope in. What are some of the things that you find hope in? It may be the amount of money in your bank account that you're like, even if I lost my job, you know, things would be okay. Maybe the way that you look, you know, you find assurance because you go to the mirror and you're like, yeah, I'm still there, still looking good. Maybe the uh, relationship that you have uh, with uh, a boyfriend or a girlfriend or a plan that you see in your life, where do you put your hope? Uh, I saw an uh, extreme example of what it looks like to put your hope in something recently this past week. I read an article that someone sent me yesterday, and it was uh, related to something called uh, a new trend called a billionaire bunker. There's these new things that I guess because of the climate kind of in a world, North Korea and who else knows what else is going on, uh, that people specifically within a, a specific class that Bernie Sanders is really passionate about, the top 1%, are investing in uh, something called billionaire bunkers, that they are taking these bunkers that were used in World War II, and if you have enough cash and enough means, you can protect yourself from if there's an oncoming asteroid or meteorite shower or a nuclear bomb or World War III breaks out, because you can go inside of these new retrofitted that they've made them unbelievably uh, up, uh, well done or nice 
bunkers that they've taken from years past and they've put all kinds of living facilities inside of them. They're all, all over Europe and in fact in America. In fact, here's a couple of pictures. So this is inside of Europe. That's a fake picture right there. That's not, you're not looking out a window. It's like, hey, just in case you're underground for the next two years, look, this beautiful scenery, which you can change with a remote. There's other ones where, uh, yeah, here's like someone's family ballroom that you can go and you can just see a picture of some fake children playing in the sand that if the apocalypse ever stops, I guess if you're locked in there, that someday you can go out to. Here's another one that you can go to. They've got them in Kansas. They've got them like an hour and a half from Texas, people are building. Not only that, it's the sales. Is there one more? Did I miss one? No, I think that's it. The, the sales of this industry has gone up 700% over the past year. It's gone up an additional 300% since the election in November. How crazy is that? <laughs> people are like, that guy does not feel steady. I don't know what's gonna happen. We're getting a bunker, honey. And, uh, and you too can have a bunker if you wanna be safe from a meteorite uh, or asteroid shower for a small price starting at probably around 250,000. Some of them go up to $70 million that you can secure. But here's what you get. You get, you get a food for one year. Some of them have uh, indoor movie theaters you can have. It's just a mansion underground. They have these underground gardens that you can be a part of. They have, uh, what else do they have in there? Underground wine clubs. It's like an apocalyptic country club at some of them. That's what it says. It's, that's a part of the advertising for the one that's here in Texas. Um, you can purchase a, uh, a uh, 10 by 20 base model for 58,000, or you can get the aristocrat for 8.3 million in the Texas one. Um, or you can find one in Kansas where it is a nuclear-hardened missile silo that's been repurposed into luxury apartments that cost $3 million a piece. And they have room for 70 people if you're looking to invest $3 million. And uh, the reason I start there, well, I, I think when you hear that, here's, here's what goes through probably most of our minds. Number one, it's either, oh man, that's a great idea. I really should like save or finance or do a mortgage or something towards that. Or you may think like a little bit like I think where I'm like, how do they know if an asteroid or a meteorite hits this thing that those guys are going to be okay? Like you can't exactly test that or a nuclear bomb. You know what I'm saying? Like you can test a car, the airbags and see what it can stand. But in terms of the, uh, the actual bunkers resistance to those things, how can it actually, how can we guarantee that everything's going to be fine? And then it's almost just a bandaid of a solution. You only got one year of food if they wipe out the world, you're, you're in your own bowling alley alone down there for a while. But then after 12 months, you're done. I mean, what are you going to do? Try to radio to another bunker and, and see if, if they've got any food that they can share? But it, it doesn't stop people, millions and millions of dollars, from putting their hope in the idea that if a cataclysmic event takes place, I will be safe. And the reality of tonight is we're about to be told by Peter why for Christians, we don't have to go through that experience of going, man, do I need a, do I need a billionaire bunker? Will I be safe from the, what could possibly take place? Because just like we just talked about, not only is that a Band-Aid, but as Christians, because of what Christ has done on the cross and rising from the dead, you and I have been given a better bunker, if you will. We have a better, a superior hope than any sort of protection that we could have from an asteroid, any sort of protection that you could have from disease or from a nuclear war, that if you are a Christian, you have been given a better hope. Tonight, what I wanna talk about is this idea of our Christian hope. Christian hope, if you take notes, you can write out Christian hope. We're gonna specifically talk about 
What is the reason for our Christian hope? Like, why do we not have to worry about if the end of the world was to come or if death was to come for us? If you're a Christian, why? You don't have to. You have a specific reason where you have hope that is far better than any sort of man-made structure could be. Specifically, uh, how we can most clearly see or how the world most clearly sees that hope, when that hope is most clearly seen, and then who we're to share that hope with as Peter lays out this text. So we're gonna start in verse 15, as we just read, as Peter begins to explore, he's been talking about uh, submission to government and submission within marriage, and then he begins to talk a little bit about fear, and tonight he's gonna talk about how our hope sets us free from any fear that we could have. Our hope sets us free from any fear of the future, from any fear of death, and what we are to now do with that hope. So here we go in verse 15. He says this. But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, as in like uh, when it comes to who's gonna be king over your life. As it were, if you were, make Christ the Lord, set him apart, distinct, that he reigns over your life, he reigns over your heart, is what he says. Your verse may say not honor the Lord, but revere him as holy. What does that look like? He tells us, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do this with gentleness and respect. So Peter says that you and I, if you're a Christian, you are to be prepared to share the reason for the hope that you have in Christ. In the midst of a world that is broken, in the midst of a world that has cancer, that has death, that has singleness, that has despair, where things don't go the way that we want them to, where things often uh, uh, go exactly the opposite way that we want them to, where people die younger than they should, where infants are never born. In the midst of all kind of just tragic circumstances, whatever you're facing, Peter says, you are to be a person who has a, this hope that shines in such a way that people look on and they go, why do you have that kind of hope? What's the reason? He says, you need to be prepared to answer the reason for your hope. Not prepared to answer like, hey, what happened to the dinosaurs and where the tectonic plates? And how, does, how did all those animals fit on the boat? And not, not answer that, but answer, why do you have hope? Our first point from the text, and I'm gonna explain why, uh, how we got here, is the uh, reason for our hope is the resurrection. The reason for our hope is the resurrection. Here's, here's why I say that. If you were to ask Peter, hey, why do you have hope? Peter, in the face of, I mean, Peter's a guy who's not long after writing this letter will be led out from the prison cell that he's in when he's writing it. He'll be put inside of a courtyard and they're gonna say, we're gonna crucify you. And he says, please don't kill me the same way my Lord died. He said, great, we're gonna crucify you upside down. And he died willingly for his faith. Peter's a guy who faced all kinds of hardship. How could Peter have hope in a world that felt hopelessly broken that still can feel that way? Because of the resurrection. At the epicenter of why Peter believed is the same reason of why you and I believe is the resurrection of Christ. All of our faith centers on. The reason that you and I have hope in a world that's hopelessly broken is because we believe that Jesus rose from the dead. The reason Easter was a celebration yesterday is not just because Jesus died for our sins. It's because we believe a man died and he came back alive. And when he came back alive, everything that he taught, everything he taught about heaven, everything he taught about hell, everything he said about this world, it's like a, it's a, a vapor that's going away. That soon, very soon, he'll return and make everything right. Everything that he said when he came back alive, it's like he verified it was all true. As we've said before, uh, that another pastor said once, it's so brilliant, that, um, hey, look, I'm, I'm not the smartest guy in the room, but if a guy can predict his own death and resurrection and then pull it off and come back from the grave, I just go with whatever he says on the subject. 
If he believes that Jonah existed, if he believes in him, I'm just with him. The reason you and I have hope and the same reason that you and I believe that the Bible is true, the same reason is the resurrection of Christ. Everything hinges on it. The reason why you and I can face uncertainty and brokenness and pain and suffering that's coming for all of us is because of one reason, because of the resurrection of Christ verified that everything that he taught about this world, about life, about where true meaning is found, about how we can have a relationship with God, all of it was true because he died, he came back alive. Everything he said about how you can have a relationship with God, one way, by trusting in what he did on the cross, dying for your sins and rising again, when he came back alive, it's like everything he said was true. Uh, It's hard to overestimate sincerely how important the resurrection is to our faith. If he didn't rise, nothing else matters. And not only that, how sharply distinct, stay with me, the idea of the resurrection makes Christianity to every other world religion. It is this fact alone that makes it so distinct from every other world religion because Christianity is not founded on the teachings of a person. That's like every other world religion, that it's founded on the teachings of Muhammad. In other words, the, the message of Christianity or Christianity in whole, as a whole did not begin by, uh, hey, Jesus died and his followers got together and were like, hey, we're gonna take these teachings and that parable and let's put them all together. Let's take them to the world like other world religions. When Muhammad died, died, his followers came together and said, hey, we're gonna take the message. We have a message for the world. Let's take it to the ends of the earth. They took his teachings. Buddha and Buddhism, the same thing happened. All throughout history, there's different religious sects that have popped up because the followers of a person or a prophet say, hey, we gotta take this message, these teachings to the end of the earth. Christianity did not begin that way. It didn't begin by the followers of Jesus coming around after he died and like, let's take this out there. The followers of Jesus were cowards after he died. I mean, the New Testament, literally, the guys who wrote it said all of us went away terrified. We weren't like, oh man, he's gonna rise from the dead and let's all head to the tomb and we're gonna have a big tailgate out there and be ready because Sunday's coming. And all of a sudden they're like, 10, nine, hey. None of them thought he was gonna rise from the dead. All of them fled because they were terrified. And then Jesus showed up and everything changed. Jesus showed up and Peter himself went from coward to courageous because he saw a dead man walking. He said, I saw my best friend get killed and crucified and I denied him. I followed him for three years. I saw him touch the eyes of blind people and change them. But in his moment or his worst hour, Jesus' worst hour, I denied him. And I saw him get killed and then a few days later, I saw him back alive. We had breakfast on the beach and everything changed for Peter. It was all around the resurrection. Everything changed for the disciples. Every single New Testament sermon, and we're gonna move on. The reason you and I have hope is the same reason that every, or the same message that was given in every single New Testament sermon. You know what, in the book of Acts, they have all the different like sermons taught by the other church. You know what all of them have in common? None of them go around and are like, hey, look, there was this parable and there's some seed and it was thrown on the rocky ground and turn the other cheek if somebody hits. None of them talk about that. They don't go around about the teachings of Jesus. They go around and they say, I saw a man die. I saw him go into the ground. He was buried and he came back alive and you could kill me. You can crucify me upside down. I saw a man die and come back alive. Are you listening to me? Are you guys gonna believe me or not? But this isn't about the teachings. I saw a man resurrect and you can kill me, but I'm gonna go with the resurrected Messiah over you who just don't like to hear that type of message. Everything about our faith hinges our hope hinges on the resurrection of Jesus. That's why we celebrate Easter. Because the tomb is empty. We have a better bunker. 
and it's found in an empty tomb and a risen Savior. And Peter says, you need to be able to know and tell and share the reason for your hope with the world around you. What's the reason for your hope? If you're a Christian, the reason we have hope is because we believe Jesus died and he rose again. And anyone who trusts in him will have eternal life. What's the reason we have hope? Because Jesus rose again. And just like he rose, we too will rise. And our world will rise and be forever changed when he makes all things new. That's why you and I have hope. Peter then goes into where we most clearly see that hope on display. Here's what he says in verse uh, 16. Continuing and talking about sharing our faith. He says, having a good conscience, so do it, sharing it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, so live in such a way that when people look at your faith, they're not like, oh my gosh, she's telling me about Jesus now? I mean, she's one of the worst people that I know. He's saying, no, live out your faith in such a way that people look on and it aligns with what you believe when you're around non-believers. So that when you're slandered, those who revile your behavior in Christ may be put to shame. Have them slander you for for the way that you date in purity. Have them slander you for the way that you won't cheat uh, taxes against your boss or cheat in general in some sort of uh, student environment. Have them slander you for the right reasons. He says, for it is better to suffer for doing good than if you should suffer, if it be God's will, than for doing evil. That if you're gonna lose your job, don't lose your job because you don't work hard. Do it because you're sharing your faith. Do it for the right reasons. He brings up an idea that is, from the text of our hope is seen most clearly when we suffer. That Peter says, look, suffering is gonna be a part of this world. It's gonna be a part of this world because of sin and it's gonna be a part of this world if you follow Jesus. Those who want to follow Jesus will face persecution. The Bible teaches that. In this world, you're going to have trouble, but take heart or hold out hope. I've overcome the world. Peter says, if you follow Jesus, just like your Messiah was crucified, there's a good chance you too will suffer for it. Don't lose hope in the midst of that. And our hope is seen most clearly or pops most brightly in the midst of suffering around us. Here's why I think this is important. So our second idea from the text is our hope is seen most clearly when we suffer. I think a lot of us, if we were like really to think about it and kind of put our beliefs on paper, there's a part of us that like believes in karma. We're like, hey, if you live a good life, good things are gonna come back to you. And if you do bad, you know, bad things are gonna come back to you. That's not what the Bible teaches. The Bible teaches, Christianity teaches, that a lot of times you do good and you get kicked in the face. A lot of times you do good and you get crucified. As our Messiah was and as Peter was. And Peter says, look, don't lose hope in the midst of whatever you're gonna suffer. Maybe it's some persecution in the world around you. Maybe uh, you live in America and the persecution you're gonna face won't be as harsh as maybe just the circumstances of the world or the life that, that uh, your circumstances have brought you in. Don't lose hope in the midst of that. Anchor your hope in Christ. Hope is seen most clearly when we suffer. We see this whenever you look around uh, at the world around us. Christianity is not in any way under persecution in this country as it is in much of our world. Uh, studies have shown that Christians' persecution is at an all-time high, 215 million, which is close, uh, is two-thirds of America, if you will, in terms of numbers. 215 million Christians live under intense persecution. 
where they risk their life, they cannot own a Bible, they have to meet in secret inside of our world today. That if you look around, it's not hard to see that, man, those who face suffering or persecution, their faith, it like pops. Our hope is seen most clearly, most brightly when suffering. Like, here's what I mean by that. Like, inside of America, like, here's the danger if you live in America. You may live in, like, China or in different places where there's intense persecution that takes place for your faith. Libya, Saudi Arabia, uh, China, in uh, Oman, Oman uh, in these different places inside of our world. But here's what the danger is in living in America. In America, we have this weird, like, lukewarm Christianity that doesn't exist in those places. Like, if you live in Libya or you live in China, you're not like, yeah, I'm kind of, you know, a Christer, Christian, Christmas and Easter, and I'm, I'm an American, so of course I go to church every now and then. You're like, uh, you're someone who risks their life to go to church, risks their life to own a Bible. And these aren't like extremes. This is the law of the land where you have to meet in secret. Lukewarm Christianity does not exist in these places of persecution. Their hope pops. The danger of living in our country is not that you're going to lose your life like you may in China, but you may lose your soul because you never were a Christian. And you grew up in maybe a Christian values home, but you never had a true faith. You never actually put your faith in God. But it's inside of those environments where suffering takes place, where you can see hope just pop because our hope is seen most clearly when we suffer for it. It's not dissimilar to uh, if you've ever uh, gone camping or you've gone to like uh, Haiti or Brazil. We used to do these trips to Brazil and uh, we'd be on this boat. Um, or if you've been to Haiti with us on one of those trips, um, you can see the night stars so much brighter than ever uh, than if you're in Dallas. Like if you're in Dallas, you kind of go outside, you go to the night star and you're like, oh, is that Orion's belt? Oh no, it's just a plane moving there. Oh, I can't really see. Is that Big Dipper? Is that Little Dipper? I can't really see anything. And then you go all of a sudden out, if maybe you're camping or you go out into a, a foreign country and you see the night star and you're like, oh my gosh, that is, the di- that is a huge spoon that is scooping up in the sky and that guy's got a bow and arrow. He's about to shoot somebody. And uh, you can see all the different constellations that are in there because they pop most dark, most brightly in the darkness because the light pollution is not there. In the same way, it is your faith and my faith. Then the faith of suffering, face of suffering is seen most clearly. Here's how that applies to you and to me. I don't know that ISIS is going to come and knock on your door. Um, that seems unlikely, but I do know that suffering is going to be a part of your life and it's going to be a part of mine. Singleness, job loss, a breakup, infertility, loss of a parent, loss of a sibling, cancer are coming. And at 25, it like feels like, man, that's so far and it's so distant. Where are you gonna put your hope, Peter says? There is only one place. There is only uh, one promise, which is that not that you're going to not have suffering in this world, but in the midst of that suffering, he's with you and he's with me. Will you cling to him and will I cling to him? He then finishes and gives us one of the most confusing verses in the Bible. And, uh, and we'll land here in just a second. But he goes into really a passage that Martin Luther, who was a Protestant reformer basically said, man, this is like one of the most obscure passages in all of the scripture. And so I'm gonna go really slowly as we just unpack what he says here. Here's what he says in verse 18. And he gives us the why or the who 
we share our faith with. So he's already told us that the reason for our hope, we need to be able to share the reason for our hope, which is the resurrection. And then to know that when suffering comes, to hold on to that hope. And now he's gonna give us who we share that hope with. Here's what he says. For Christ suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. That's the gospel. Being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit, or in the spirit of Christ, that he was crucified, and then he was made alive, and uh, this was done by the spirit of God. That same spirit is the spirit in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison, or in bondage you may have, um, or you could say in hell. The spirits who are now in hell. Because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through the water. Okay, stay with me. What did you just say? He just said that Jesus went and preached to demons in hell? What did Peter just say? Here's what Peter just said. That the Spirit of God was the driving force that at some point, let me, let me explain it this way, that at some point we're told that there were these spirits, which is, in other words, consistently used for the spirit of a person. It's spirit of Christ, spirit of a person. They're like, hey, his spirit went, and David fell asleep, and his spirit went to heaven. That the spirit, it's a person. So there were these people who lived in the days of Noah who did not obey, did not listen to the spirit of Christ. When was Christ in the days of Noah? What are you saying, Peter? That there were these people who lived at the time of Noah that Christ went and proclaimed uh, the message uh, or some message, if you will, of repentance, of turning to God, of calling them um, out of their ways of repenting and turning to God. What is he saying? Here's what, here's what he's saying. Based on this passage in 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 5, where Peter brings this subject up again, where Noah is called a preacher of righteousness, a preacher of the good news, that what Peter says is that Jesus and the spirit of Christ was in Noah, was working in Noah, going around during the time of Noah, proclaiming the good news to those people that were on earth, that a flood is coming, get on the ark, that the spirit of Christ drove Noah to go out into the places around him and to talk about the fact that the judgment of God is coming. Come onto the ark, trust in the ark. Don't trust in your ability to save yourself. Don't trust in your ability to save your family. Come onto the ark. I'm telling you, judgment is coming. That the reason Noah went out and proclaimed, hey, there is salvation, come into the ark, come be saved, was because the spirit of Christ inside of him drove him to go share that news, if you will. The same spirit of Christ uh, that is at work inside of his church today, calling them to go proclaim. He continues and says baptism, and I'm gonna come back to Noah. Baptism, talking about the water, corresponds to this water. This baptism now saves you. Wait a second, baptism saves you? Yes, but I'm not talking about the removal of dirt from the body on the outside, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who's gone into heaven and is at the right hand, at the right hand of God, with angels, authorities, powers having been subjected. And that Peter just says, the word baptism uh, is the same word for baptizo or for wash. That he says that we are saved not by an external washing, which is what he says. Hey, not by having water go on the outside of your body and kind of getting dirt off. That's called a bath. That doesn't save you. What saves you 
is this spiritual washing that takes place when a person trusts Jesus as a payment for their sin in his resurrection. Their soul is washed clean once and for all. That all of their sins are wiped away. And external baptism, which if you're a believer, all of us are called to participate in what's called the sacrament of baptism or it's just a public display of the internal baptism that's already taken place inside of our heart where we are called to be baptized and symbolically display, hey, just like I'm buried in this water and I'm raised to walk in newness of life, that's what Christ has done on the inside of me. He's washed away my sins, not because I'm a good person, but because I appealed to him for a clean conscience. You see what the verse said? You can put it back up there. That in baptism, all we're doing is saying, God, I'm not a good person, Lord. I need you to save me. I need you to clean my conscience. I need you to clean my behavior. I need you to cleanse my life. And Peter says, when that person comes to God and says, look, I trust in what you did on the cross for my sin, Lord, help me. He says, they're spiritually forever washed, baptized in the soul, forever sinless before God. And they're publicly, baptism in the church is a public display of something that's taking place on the inside. It's like a wedding ring. A wedding ring is like, oh, a wedding ring doesn't make you married. It's just a public display of something that's already taken place. Baptism, when you go through the sacrament of being baptized, you're publicly displaying, hey, this is what Christ has done in my life. I'm not saved by this. I'm saved by him. But let me publicly display, there's been a change that has taken place. Now, how does this relate to who we should proclaim to? Because our third idea from the text is that we share our hope with everyone we can. The reason why baptism took place inside of the early church was to publicly display the faith the new faith that we had stepped into. The reason why Noah went out sharing the message of Christ or sharing the message of get on the ark. There's a flood coming. Get on the ark. Will you trust in this piece of wood? If you will come, you will be spared. You will be saved. It's because the spirit of Christ drove him to share his hope with everyone that he could. The same spirit of Christ, if you're a believer, drives the people of Christ, to share their faith with the world around him. In other words, that same spirit that moved Noah to go say, get on the ark, is the same spirit that should be driving you and I to say, trust in the empty tomb. There is no other bunker by which you can be saved. Trust in the cross. Just as Noah said, trust in the piece of wood. It was lifted up and everyone who trusted in it was saved. So everyone who trusts in the piece of wood lifted up, aka a cross, shall be saved. There is no other way. And that same spirit of Christ, Peter says, that went and proclaimed to deaf ears, but it still drove him in the time of Noah to go tell them there is a a hope, there is a way to be saved, is the same spirit that works inside of the people of God today. And if you're a believer in Christ and you're not compelled to go share the message of Christ, Man, you should be concerned. And you may be thinking, oh, well, I just don't want to like force my religion on anybody else. You're forcing someone, you're allowing them to hear the only way that they can be saved. I mean, in 10 billion years, will your coworker, who you never shared your faith with, after 10 billion years away from Christ or in hell? Is he gonna look at you and be like, man, I'm so glad that you didn't force your religion on me. 
What else could matter more in this life? There are times where I like find myself wanting to go into the business world. Like I'm like, man, I'm gonna go back, I'm gonna go to law school or open a Chick-fil-A or something. That looks fun, Christian chicken. And uh, <laughs> Sundays, you're off. And uh, this message brought to you by Chick-fil-A and the music's coming in now, so it sounds great. Um, and what like, what keeps me, and, and to be honest, I, I'll like look at some of you and I'm like, man, I, oh man, that's a nice suit. Wonder much, how much he makes. Wonder what he does. Maybe I should go do that. And what anchors me back is I can be like so, materialism can be a thing for me so easily. It is a thing for me. Let's just call it what it is. Um, what drives me back to doing what we're doing, and I'm not saying if you work in any other industry, you're doing anything wrong. I'm saying for me, a lot of the times, the reasons I want to leave is strictly materialistic. It's strictly because I want to have a bigger house. I'm concerned about, oh man, how am I going to afford this or afford that? And I lose sight of perspective. I lose sight of where our hope is found, of what really matters in this life. I mean, how easy is it to get caught up in like, oh, my car's too old. I need newer clothes. I need a bigger house. I need another apartment. When am I going to get married? My biological clock is ticking. How easy is it to get to lose sight of what matters? Of your purpose at your job, of the lost people that are around you. I really mean that. Will you listen to me? If there's not a part of you that's concerned about the people in your apartment complex that are going to hell, man, you gotta just surrender that to God. And if you may be going, I'm an introvert, it's not easy for me. I have deep compassion for an introversion. I'm married to a highly introvert. I have deep compassion. But at the end of the day, if you're not at least going, Lord, will you take my life? Will you help me? Embolden your servant. Will you help me, Lord? Help me to see the opportunities. Help me to share the only way. There is an ark. There is only one way. And I don't want to step and be uncomfortable and I don't want to make them uncomfortable. But Lord, at the end of the day, I don't want them to be uncomfortable for a billion, billion, billion years. I'd rather them be uncomfortable right now just because I'm telling you, look, I'm not, I'm not a perfect person. I don't have my life together. But I found a perfect Savior. And he is changing me. He is redefining my past. He is redefining my future. And if you will just trust, not in how good of a person you are, but in his work on the cross, everything will change. Your eternal destiny will change. God doesn't want you to work your way for him. What kind of a weak God needs religious actions? Our God is way better than that. He's done something for you. He doesn't want anything from you. And you may not be able to say it in that way, but if at least that posture of a heart, if the church doesn't have that posture, what are we doing? Because we're afraid of being uncomfortable? Here's what I want to do, and I want to close. I want you right now to pray where you are. I, I, if you're like me, there are lost friends, people who don't have a relationship with Christ that come to mind. And we're just going to take a minute. We're going to pray for them by name, individually, where you are. It could be a lost family member. It could be a lost friend. But I want to, with you, we're just going to go. We're going to storm the gates of heaven and invite God Almighty to send the hounds of heaven after their soul that he loves way more than we ever will. Souls that work next to you, live next to you, 
were born next to you in line? I'm just gonna invite God, will you step in, will you win? And then, I just want you to pray to God, hey, will you help me be more your man, more your woman, will you help me to be more bold in my faith? Help me to share, help me to see a door that I could step through to just share the reason I have hope. So we're just gonna go to the God of all hope and pray for those who are hopeless, whether or not they realize it right now, and then I'm gonna come and close this. Father, we come to you. And on behalf of the thousands of names that we just prayed, fathers, sisters, co-workers, friends, people who live next to us, Lord, we ask that you would step in and you would win. We know that you love them way more than we do. Will you break our hearts? Would you soften them to be sensitive to just things that are eternal? just confess it's so easy to be distracted by today. Will you forgive us, Lord? Will you strengthen the parts of our heart? Will you multiply the parts of our heart that, like our Savior, are focused on seeking and saving the lost? Father, would you even take these prayers and would you allow them to be answered with a yes You say that in Christ Jesus, all the promises of God are a yes. We know that you did not promise to save every one of these persons, but we ask that every single name here would come to know you. We pray for our brothers and sisters throughout the world that are facing the loss of their homes, the loss of their lives. Would you strengthen your church, Father? Forgive us for our apathy, our indifference. Would you strengthen the church inside of this room? Would you help us, Lord, to know and to walk in the reason that we have hope? 